Open your Bibles this evening to Esther chapter 4. Esther chapter 4. Come a little further, Esther 4. We have been studying the wonderful books that close the historical section of the Jewish scriptures. Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. In the book of Esther, every paragraph in the story pulls us in. And chapter 4 opens with a hinge on which the entire story turns. The story is now moving along with a very strong current. It's a river pulling us along in a certain direction. Ten years earlier, chapter 1 happened. And we are now in chapter 4. Esther has been the queen for four years. The solution began in chapter 1 long before the problem. So in chapter 1, God began to move things through the kingdom to bring about deliverance before there was even a danger that they would need to be delivered from. Now in chapter 4, we see the problem as it is revealed. And the hero finally becomes aware of the problem in chapter 4. The plot itself was revealed last week in chapter 3. It is nothing less than the absolute destruction of the entire Jewish people. Chapter 3, verse 13, it says, All the provinces and all the Jews. Universal terms are used constantly throughout chapter 3. Every province, every ruler, every town, every language group. Every Jew. But in chapter 3, we saw only the conversation of the evil ones, Haman and the king. In chapter 4, next week, we will see holy communion. Discussion between Mordecai and Esther. That's really the bulk of chapter 4, beginning in verse number 6 to the end of the chapter. I'm sorry, verse number five to the end of the chapter. But here tonight, we're going to see the first four verses. Esther chapter four, verses one to four. And I want to ask you, what would happen if a godly man were in that council that we discussed last last week? What would happen if a godly man saw evil out of control? What would happen if a godly man heard of the destruction of the Jewish people. What would you have done if you had been in the room with them? What should you have done? Well, we now have the information that they did not have because we know about chapter one and chapter two, and we know the way it's working right through to the end of the book. So there's this great surprise. The king of the entire empire of Persia marries a beautiful orphan who is also a Jew. How did that happen? From rags to riches. 
How did it happen that he lost his first wife? Well, it happened because he was in a drunken stupor and he called her out to be paraded, probably naked, in front of all these political dignitaries whom he was hosting for six months. That's an amazing, unusual beginning. But after Esther has lived for four years in a state of luxury, the cobra raises its head and puts out its hood and is about to strike. Now Haman, because of his irrational anger at Mordecai, has threatened to destroy all the Jewish people. So what's going to happen? Deliverance will begin, but it begins in a very uncomfortable way. And I want that to be firmly placed in our minds. God's deliverance commonly begins uncomfortably. That is really the thesis of this evening's message. Let's read the first four verses of chapter four and see the discomfort. And as we go through these verbs, I want you to ask, would that have been fun? Three letters, fun. Verse one, chapter four, when Mordecai perceived all that was done, that means all that had happened by Haman and the king. Do you think he had a fun time learning that? Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes, went out into the midst of the city and cried with a loud and bitter cry. He came even to the very king's gate. But no one might enter the king's gate clothed with sackcloth. Verse 3, And in every province, wherever the king's commandment and his decree came, there was great mourning among the Jews and fasting and weeping and wailing. And many of them lay in sackcloth or laid on sackcloth and ashes. Verse 4, So Esther's maids and her eunuchs came and told her. Then the queen was exceedingly grieved. And she sent clothing to clothe Mordecai and to take away his sackcloth from him. But he did not receive it. Tonight, I'd like to give you three points for the sermon. Number one, what did Mordecai do when he found out? That's the first point. I want to draw your attention to what he did. That's in verses one and two. Those two verses go together because Mordecai is the subject. You can look down in verse three and you can see the second point has a new subject. Who's the subject in verse three? It's the Jews themselves. So verses one and two is what did Mordecai do? Verse three is what did the people do? And look down in verse number four for the third point. Esther does something. What does she do? Or in other words, I want to show you that weeping is the right response. That's Mordecai. He does what is right. He cries. I'm going to unpack that with the five verbs there. Then we're going to see the people. What did they do? They did what was natural. 
What does all society do when it's threatened with destruction? They did something natural. And then I want to show you what Esther did. Let's follow through these one at a time. Verse one, the first verb. If you have a pen, you can underline these verbs one at a time. You can even put numbers right down the side. There are five of them. Can someone tell me the first verb that Mordecai does? What's the first thing he does? He learns. He gets an education. Mordecai learns the scope of the problem. Brothers and sisters, God is pleased when men act rationally. We have a proliferation of churches that are irrational, anti-intellectual. We need to be rational. Number one, because God wrote a book. Books cannot be understood unless we read the subjects and the verbs. Number two, we must be rational because God's son has a name. His name is logic. In Greek, John 1 verse 1, in the beginning was the Logos. And the Logos was with God and the Logos was God. That's where we get our English word logic from. Jesus Christ himself is called the word. He's rational. He's not irrational. It's a connection between abstract thought and the spoken word. And that is our savior. Thirdly, we need to be rational because the Christian church received letters from the apostle Paul. What are letters but rational discussions of important matters? Fourthly, we need to be rational because the Christian gospel is a message to the mind. Your mind must understand you have sinned before God. You are in great danger before God. And there was one who took your place. Mordecai learned the scope of the problem. And God is very pleased when his people act rationally. We ought to gather all the facts on any particular matter. Some attacks on the truth disregard logic reflection and the rational faculties but God has made men in his own image and one of the greatest benefits of being made in the image of God is that we can think we can use our minds we can weigh propositions we can decide that is true or that is false or it is partly true and partly false or it is true under these conditions and only these conditions it is false Sometimes, but not at other times. How many of Paul's prayers ask for God's wisdom? Ephesians chapter one, what does Paul pray for? He says, I pray to God for you that he would give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Christ. Three words for knowledge and rational reflection. Again, in Philippians chapter one, he prays that your love would abound more and more in knowledge and all discernment. Again, in Colossians 1, verse 9, he says, I pray for the, you, that you would be filled up with the knowledge of God's will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. Three prayers in three epistles that we would have a rational, clear mind. And don't forget what is the greatest commandment, that you would love the, God, love the Lord your God. In what way? With all your mind. God would be honored if we love him with our mind. Mordecai is rational. He's thoughtful. He thinks. 
A Christian pastor must be one who is able to teach, not shout, not entertain, not dance, not raise money. He must be skilled at explaining abstract concepts and bringing them right down to your life so that you say, I see it. I see it. I can conquer my sin. It might take time and effort, but with God's help and with the word of God and the spirit of God, he must be skilled at teaching. A Christian ministry is marked by teaching, by instruction. Years ago, I was teaching a class on preaching and I studied every word in the Greek New Testament that means preaching. And I found something remarkable. Can you guess, now you can, can you guess what word is used by far more than any other for preaching in the New Testament? The English word. The word that in, in, in Greek, when translated in English, in English, all the translators agree, this is the word they use for it. What word is used for preaching the most all through the New Testament? Teaching. Teaching. Which is why famously John MacArthur has in the list of the gifts in Ephesians chapter 4, he says he gave apostles, evangelists, prophets, pastors, teachers. And so John MacArthur always puts pastor dash teacher. And you can tell a man who went to John MacArthur seminary because almost always on their website, they write so-and-so pastor dash teacher. But John MacArthur was trying to recover the emphasis that biblical preaching is explaining the Bible to the rational mind of man. But the problem is more than a simple course. It is this, Hebrews 4, verse 6, a verse that I referenced this morning in Bakoda. You've heard this before, haven't you? My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. But go on with the verse because that's not all it says. Not only do they lack knowledge, that could be fixed with instruction. Later on in the verse it says, we reject knowledge. They have turned away from knowledge. You, need, you see, people not only need instruction, they need a change in their minds. But not only that, later on in the verse it says the third thing. It's remarkable how many times in the Bible God gives an argument in a group of three. You can see if, that's, if that is a subtle shadow or an echo of the Trinity. I think it is. But even if one way or the other, in Hosea 4, verse 6, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge, number one. Number two, for rejecting knowledge because they need a change in their minds. They don't just need more instruction. They actually need a change in their minds. And number three, my people are destroyed because they forget knowledge. Which one are you in most danger of, of having? Number one, you, did, just did, you never learned? Or perhaps you just don't want to learn? Or number three, you learned, uh, but then you forgot it. You've fallen away from where you used to be at. Hosea 4, 6 reminds us of all those. That's the first verb. Mordecai learned. He perceived. He gathered the information. What information? He had to learn all about those evil things they did. In the book of Jeremiah, it says, do not learn the way of the heathen. John chapter 10. I'm sorry, Jeremiah chapter 10. But it does not mean don't study sin. What it means is do not study it 
so that you can follow it. Don't study about Satan or demon or witchcraft in order to follow it. But in 2 Corinthians 2 verse 10, it says, we are not ignorant of Satan's tricks. You need to understand what the lies are. You need to read the Quran. You need to read the the things that, that sinful people say and rationally understand it and realize this is what they are saying. This is the danger that is being presented. Verb number two, look in verse number one. Tell me the second verb that Mordecai does. Tears his clothes. Tearing clothes is costly. It signifies a clear break with his normal routine. He's not going to go on like normal. He's tearing his clothes. He's changing his plan. What's the third verb in verse one? He put on rags and ashes. Sackcloth were rags that they used when they were weeping at funerals. Mordecai puts on rags and wipes his face with ashes from the fire. Who would he look like? A poor, dirty, homeless man. But Mordecai was a rich, accomplished man. Why would he dress like a poor, homeless man? Because fashion and clothing have always been our chief way of sending daily messages to those in society. We send messages by the clothing we wear. Years ago, I read the book, Dress for Success. A book was written by an unbeliever. And in that book, he tells us the message of clothes. It was a fascinating book, by the way. At one section in the book, he said, they took pictures of a man wearing a suit with his hair combed. And then they took pictures of the same man in shorts and a t-shirt with his hair messed up. And they took the same pictures out and they asked a number of people, I don't remember how many, maybe a hundred people, would you trust this man, yes or no? And they found a high number, 70% or so of people, when they saw the man, the picture wearing a suit, they said they would trust him. Then they turned around to a different group of people and took the picture of the man, same man, in shorts and a t-shirt and said, would you trust this man? And a low number. I don't remember the exact numbers, but it would be something like 20 of the people said they would trust the man in t-shirt and shorts, and 70 of the people said they would trust the man in a suit. All I'm saying is, clothes send messages. He put his clothes on to send messages. In case anyone's thinking I was making a a statement about sin, I wear shorts and t-shirts. I also wear suits. I'm simply saying that here, he put on his clothes to send a message. He was trying to communicate to them very clearly. This is why pastors must instruct the women in their church about these messages. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, it says, pastors must teach the women in the church, do not wear clothes that say, look at me. That's why they're specifically told in verse 9, don't wear clothes that draw attention to the sexual zones of the body. That's verse 9. And then in verse 10, don't wear clothes like special hair or gold or jewelry where the people would be distracted, where people would be talking about your clothes. It's not a sin, ladies, to dress up in a beautiful clothing. It is a sin to say, I'm going to put this on because I want attention. 
That's what Timothy was, Paul was telling Timothy. This is why heaven's uniform is a white robe. Revelation 7 verse 9. They're given white robes and they're told, keep those robes spotless. So that even if you couldn't hear Paul, uh, hear Mordecai, you could still tell what message he was sending. What's the fourth verb in verse one? Nope, before cry. He went out into the city. He goes in public. His message must be public. It was Mordecai's personal feelings, right? But he said, you have to feel what I feel. Is it good to make people feel what you feel? What if, what if you feel, what if you feel like dancing? So you blast your music very loud. Is that a good thing? What if you feel sad from a funeral? So you just blast your funeral music. Is that a good thing? Is it good to share your feelings? What about Facebook or Instagram or these social media? How many people put pictures up to show what they're feeling? Do you ever look at the status on what's up? How many of those status updates have something like, so happy, bad day, when times are hard, friends are few. You know what they're saying. They're saying, I'm not feeling good and I want you to know it. Mordecai's feeling bad. So he goes out to the city so everyone else will feel it. When is it right to share your feelings with others? A lot of your feelings should just be kept quiet to yourself. Today, men want the world to know about their feelings. But here's the rule. Your feelings should not be shared when they are self-centered or silly. Two S's. If you have silly or self-centered feelings, please keep those to yourself. That's what a two-year-old does. The two-year-old opens his mouth when he has nothing but silly things to say. When he might want to tell you about what he ate for lunch. Or he might want to tell you how he's feeling. It's fine for a mom and dad to hear the two-year-old and to pick up the two-year-old and kiss him on his cheek. But he shouldn't go out into the street and let us all become aware of the thoughts he has. And a good parent will say, come, come inside, Timmy. But Mordecai's feelings were not self-centered or silly. They were appropriate and proportional to the horror of the great evil that was coming. Those feelings should be made public. Sometimes our feelings match reality. If you have feelings that are matched up with great ideas, then maybe those feelings should be shared. Mordecai's feelings should have been shared. He had a horror over evil. In the book of Ezekiel, God tells Ezekiel to howl, cry aloud, and do not spare. That means don't spare the volume. Raise your voice as loud as you can. And if someone says, shut up, Ezekiel, you don't listen to them. Because your feelings now should be shared. They match reality. 
But then you say, how can I tell if my feelings match reality? That's the point of reading your Bible. When you read your Bible, you learn how to match your feelings with reality. And you learn how to grade because you have a thousand feelings in a single day. And you need to know, oh, that feeling, oh, that's one of the two Rand feelings. I better put it in the two Rand spot. But that feeling, that's a million Rand. And I'd better put that feeling out in public for everyone to know. There are some feelings that demand an audience in the middle of the city. But a lot of our feelings, they should just quietly be pressed down inside. Our problem is this. Because of sin, Titus 1.15, because our minds are corrupted, we tend to push out the two Rand feelings, to, to uh, announce and advertise the two Rand feelings, and bottle up the million Rand feelings. So how many of us on our WhatsApp status put biblical messages or appropriate godly messages? Or forget WhatsApp status, because WhatsApp itself is something like two Rand. Do you really want to talk to people about a funeral on WhatsApp? You might be forced to do it, but it almost cheapens the death. Would you talk to your sister about the death of your father on WhatsApp? Hey, sis. Hey, rough news. Dad died. Oh, sorry. I wrote, Dad deed. Died, I mean. Are you going to put that on WhatsApp? It'd be an insult to your father. I hope not. Don't do that. What Mordecai does is he rightly takes his appropriate feelings into public. Doesn't David do this when he says in Psalm 96 and Psalm 98 that he wants all the world and all the earth to sing to the Lord? He says, go right out there into all the nations and let those nations know these are the feelings they should have. And when the nations shout back, ah, we don't want your God, David says, you need our God. And when they say, I told you, go away. This is our country and we don't want you. The biblical New Testament answer is, we are here to stay. We're going to bring our Christian feelings to you. We don't conquer the world with guns, but we do go into all the world preaching the gospel to every creature. And guess what? 99% of those creatures don't want it. But we have come with a message. We are ambassadors from the king. And whether they will hear or whether they won't hear, we come with that message. And we save some with fear and we save some with pity and compassion. Here, Mordecai got it right. He recognized that this was worth it. What's the fifth and final verb in verse number one? I think the New American Standard has wailed. There's two words that describe this. What are the two words that describe the kind of crying? Loud tells us about the volume. Bitter tells us about the timbre. What is timbre? It's the way you tell one sound from another. That's what timbre is. If I say, Ochandit, and your mother says, Ochandit, if you're Afrikaans, can you tell the difference between mine and hers? How can you tell? The way you can tell, that sound, that's called timbre. 
you hear it. And if you played a trumpet, oh, that would be pretty high. If you played a violin or a trumpet or a piano, what's the difference in those sounds? The difference is called timbre. Here we've got volume and we've got timbre. We've got Mordecai saying, when I cry, when I wail, I'm going to make sure it is communicating a message in every way. I'm going to make sure the volume communicates. I'm going to make sure the timbre communicates. So you can tell a difference when I say, I love you. And I love you. Or, I love you. Those contradict each other. They're, they're different in timbre and they can send a whole message. That's why I had Amy play before I began preaching this evening, Oh Sacred Head Now Wounded. No one can dance to that music. It's not possible. That music says wailing, death, horror, sadness. Mordecai's wail was like that tune. Until, seven, until we reach heaven, some of our songs should have that timbre. In other words, if you only sing happy songs, you're not singing the way you should sing because there are songs about death. There are Mordecai's responses here. Weeping is common in the Bible. Did you know there's over 400 references to weeping in the Bible? Can you think of the kind of people who wept in the Bible? Nearly all of the famous believers wept. Jake, and when I say wept, I don't just mean weep. I'll say wept over serious, heavy problems. Not just wept because they were happy. That happens a lot. Or not just weeping because they got treated badly. That happens too with Esau. But I'm talking about weeping because terrible things happened to them. Or terrible things were, were there in the world. Jacob weeps when he finds out that Joseph is, da- is dead. David weeps eight times. Usually over the effects of sin. In fact, David is the second most weeping man in all the Bible. Can you guess the first? Jeremiah. Jeremiah. The weeping prophet. Paul, it says he has many tears for the church in Ephesus. And he wept for them often. Multiple times it says Paul wept when he preached. And he wept for the churches that he planted. John wept in the book of Revelation. Peter weeps whenever he sinned. We are commanded, blessed are those who weep over their sin. Matthew 5, verse 4. Can you think of the times Jesus wept? There's two. Can you think of them? Not the cross. Gethsemane. Actually, I don't think he wept there. It just as he sweated great drops of blood. Lazarus. In John 11, verse 35, the shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. And I preached a sermon on that last year. So I can tell it really impacted you. John eleven thirty-five, 35, Jesus wept when he saw what happened with the death of these people. Lazarus died and then he saw how they all disbelieved. He said it. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet we will live. Whoever lives and believes in me will never die. 
Martha doesn't believe him. She goes on weeping. And then he walks to the house and he sees the people all around weeping. I am the resurrection. And it doesn't change them. And he says, look at this. How sad. They've de- There's this death and that's sad enough. But the people have no hope because they don't believe in me. That's when it says Jesus wept. And then in Luke chapter 19, just around the same time, Luke 19, verse 41, as he comes to draw near to Jerusalem, it says he looked at the city and he wept over it. Why? Because in 40 years, that city was going to be destroyed. That's very interesting. Notice our Lord weeps when something is 40 years away. He knows in 40 years, this beautiful city is going to be destroyed. And he weeps at the destruction of something beautiful. The actions of godly men should usually serve as a guide for us. Scripture records that these men wept because they did it correctly. They matched the situation with the right response. And that is what we need to be doing as mature and growing Christians. This is the way Mordecai weeps. He thinks back to realize God's people were about to be destroyed, though they have lasted for 1,500 years. He thinks of the promises of the Messiah, the world's hope. He thinks of all the pain and injustice and thievery of all those Jews are murdered in 11 months. The evil that was planned by Haman and agreed upon by the king sounds like Satan's master stroke. It's hard to think of anything more diabolical and Mordecai thinks and looks at that great evil and says, this kind of evil deserves ripping my clothes, going out in the middle of the streets and weeping out, no, no. Mordecai makes his response as complete in his body as the threat is to righteousness. Weeping is right at times, but it is also hard. Why is it hard? Two reasons. It's hard because it cannot happen quickly. It takes time. We don't want to give time to it because we are busy. Weeping is hard because it cannot happen comfortably. It takes energy and no one likes discomfort. Weeping is hard because it cannot happen cheaply. It takes resources, clothing, and time. A wise and biblical response to evil is hard. So many men commonly respond to the problem of evil in three incorrect ways. Laughter. The wrong way to respond to evil is laughter. And I want to encourage you, if you are accustomed to laughing when you hear about someone else's sin, mark that as a sin and repent of it. Just like a man who commonly uses the Lord's name in vain. If you commonly use the Lord's name in vain or you commonly laugh when you hear about sin, I've seen that many, many times among the Tsongas. If that is your common habit, repent of that and and teach your mind to move away. Mordecai doesn't laugh when he hears about sin. Laughter. Blasphemy says we should just make jokes about the problem. They put the word hell or the word damn into entertainment. We entertain ourselves by watching a cool, beautiful man or strong, handsome man with a beautiful woman and he'll say, hell or damn. And we watch a movie and aren't even bothered by it. When those concepts of hell and damnation should bring tears to us. I believe it was Bob Jones Jr., preacher in America, Methodist preacher in America, who said, if we can 
preach on hell without weeping, we should probably preach on something else. I don't know if that's literally true, but I think that's a good guide. Number two, what's the one of the wrong ways men respond? Not only laughter, but distraction. When people hear about evil, distraction. Materialism says a car, a house, a phone, a sport deserves your undivided attention. When we hear about evil, we quickly change the channel. This is why when you hear the news, it might announce that there was a terrible crime some terrible crime happened, then just keep watching the news. In two minutes, they'll jump to something else. And in other news, a kitten was stuck in a tree today. We got the kitten down. What you just told us about people who were killed. Number three, how do people respond incorrectly to evil? They deny it. Liberalism says there is no sin or wrath in God. Interestingly, on this point, the prosperity gospel, the charismatics are commonly the same as liberals who deny the Bible. They will deny that there is evil. They'll say you just need to speak faith or speak prosperity into existence. The best evangelists and the best prayers have the right view of mourning and weeping. They've matched weeping and devotion and sacrifice up with the ideas of eternal fire and the wrath of God and willful rebellious sinners. They've matched those two. Point number two, look at verse three. In every province, wherever the king's commandment and his decree came, there was a great mourning among the Jews, fasting, weeping, wailing. They lay in sackcloth and ashes. Again, five responses very similar to Mordecai's. It's natural. This is just a whole society of people. All these people said, this is terrible. And what's the right response to something terrible? I must weep over it. The natural response of seeing beautiful artwork destroyed, beautiful families ruined, is weeping. Let me move on to verse 4. So Esther's maids and her eunuchs came and told her. Then the queen was exceedingly grieved, and she sent raiment to clothe Mordecai to take away his sackcloth, but he would not receive it. There's three verbs there. Told, take, received. Esther was told about the problem. Then she went to Mordecai and said, oh, take, take away your sackcloth. And he would not do it. Weeping is the necessary response to evil. Let me draw this to your attention and try to put the hook in. If Mordecai would not have wept, Esther would not have known. At least not in this way. If Esther had not known she would not have saved the Jewish people. Weeping is necessary before salvation. God used the mechanism of Mordecai's weeping to bring about Esther's knowledge and to bring salvation along. 
Brothers and sisters, there is no salvation without weeping over sin. There is no saving faith in Christ. There is no assurance of the Holy Spirit without weeping over our sin. If you have not been broken over your sin, how in the world will you believe in the Son of God? Because true faith is a coming to God and seeing who you are. Today I was speaking with someone who said, 2 Corinthians 5.17, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Yes, but you have to grapple with what those old things are. The old things are not your bad decisions or your failure in business. The old things are your evil sin, your foolish, wicked rebellion against God. Everything in you was taking the gun and shooting every round into Jesus. Everything in you was taking an axe. Everything in you was lifting up your sword, your weapon. And when all the weapons were taken from you, you picked up your hand to slap the face of the Son of God. That's the old things that are passed away. And if you say, that wasn't me, then you haven't been humbled. You've never mourned and wept over your sin. You've never understood what it really means to be thrown down on your face in humility before God. You don't see how bad the problem is. Mordecai understood how bad the problem is. This problem is so bad, I've got to weep. And if you haven't learned to weep over your sin, then you haven't seen the third point, that weeping is a necessary response to big problems. Are you broken over your sin? I don't believe that you're converted if there was never a time when you saw yourself as a child of Satan. This is my great difficulty in preaching on the streets. I have to convince these people. Was there ever a time when you were a child of Satan? Oh, they'll say, I was saved in 2004. Okay, good. You were saved in 2004. What about in 2002? Yes, yes. No, were you a child of Satan? No, no, no. Were you a sinner? Well, I mean, we all do some bad things. What about 1986, 1994, 1999? What was your spirit like then? Oh, my spirit was good. Then what did you need to be saved from when you were saved? You were never saved from anything. That's all fake. Satan has twisted your mind and given you a false word for an non-existent experience. You were never converted because you were never saved from anything. And I think this happens with many, many people in 2 Corinthians 5.17 when it says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. If you don't understand that the old things are, I was a child of the devil. I had his surname. I was evil, top to bottom. In fact, some of those evil ways are still with me. Oh, God, help me that I would throw away day by day more of my sin. If you don't see that and hate that sin, you haven't come through the door of weeping. This message, the message of chapter four, is a message of weeping before salvation, before deliverance is weeping. And now I want to close with a second hook. Not only that Mordecai's weeping was essential to their salvation, and not only that the weeping had to come before the salvation, 
But notice this. We saw in chapter one that the solution began before the problem. Is the solution good news or bad news? It's good news. The good news started before the bad news. That was the lesson of chapters one and two. But here it's in the reverse in chapter four. Now it's bad news before they get saved. So in chapters one and two, good news first and bad news. But in chapter four, it, in chapters three and four, it's bad news first before we ever get to the salvation. Here's the point I want to draw home. They didn't know that what was happening in chapters one and two were good news while it was happening. Mordecai was alive in chapter one, but he didn't know when the king divorced his wife that that was good news. When Esther was taken up to be the queen, oh, wow. But he didn't know what that meant. My point is, God has so worked it that we can't know how good the good news is, even though it's there until we begin the weeping, until we are thrown down in despair and humility. We cannot see how good the good is, but the good was there before the bad was ever there. And the saving grace was there before Satan and sin were there. Before I was even born, God had wonderful purposes to save his people from their sins. But the only possible way to come to the knowledge is if I come in absolute trust and say, Oh, everything in me is sinful, but I am sure and confident that God was doing many, many good things before I even knew about all this bad. That is a heart of true and absolute trust in God. I don't even know what good things he's done for me, but I'm going to cast my soul on him and on his good purposes. And I don't even know how I can be saved. Look at this. All the Jewish people are going to be killed. I don't know how that can be changed, but I'm going to weep out my fear and prayer to God and trust in him through my weeping. Weeping before deliverance. And what that means for us in the new covenant is to weep over our sin. And if you have been saved, then you need to go Weeping over others' sins, like Psalm 126, verses 5 and 6. He that goeth out weeping, bearing precious seed, will doubtless come again rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. I charge you, go out weeping over the souls of men who are so foolish and backward and dark and blind that they cannot weep for themselves. They talk as if they're saved and they know nothing about salvation. They're blind. They can't even pity themselves. But you can go and pity them. You can cry where they won't cry. You can see the danger they don't see. You can see hell that they can't see. And may God bless that to the conversion of a great many souls. Oh, dear God, make this message of Mordecai's weeping to bring eternal realities to our soul. Oh, Father, come. And pour out your spirit. That is our prayer this month. We ask the Holy Spirit that he would come 
align our feelings with reality and grant us boldness to go into the midst of the city and declare it. Help us to speak wisely and biblically and grant to us tears. Even this month, give us tears to lead sinners to the, gro- to the cross. Help us to speak the gospel, to believe these great realities of heaven and hell and eternity and life and death and the wrath of God. Help us to believe these things and to teach them to those to whom we speak. Oh God, grant to us eyes to see into eternity that we might one day rejoice at the end for rejoicing will come at the end if we get there through the channel of weeping over our sin. In Jesus' name, amen.